Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and I'm excited uh, about the topic today and welcoming another Asian entrepreneur on the line here, Mr. Andrew Collins. Andrew is calling in from Singapore. Welcome to the podcast, buddy. Marcus, great to be here. Good yeah, to be well, here in Singapore with you now. Exactly. Hanging out in our neighborhood. But oh, yeah. uh, before we get into all the fun stories, let me just quickly introduce you a little more. Um, so Andrew is the founder and the CEO of the Mailman Group, um, and anyone who's doing business in China would know that group. Um, they're an award-winning global sports digital consultancy and agency uh, with a headquarter in, Sing in Shanghai. Uh, the group has also recently, or I think a few years ago, acquired a group in Europe called Seven League, which uh, is one of the leading sports uh, digital cons consultancies in Europe. Um, it's also partnering with Cabo, which is, uh, again, another uh, social media technology company. Uh, and Andrew's done a whole bunch of exciting things there in China, built an incredible business, which is now going global. Um, so our conversation really is going to be about, of course, a little bit of what, you know, what, what Chinese social media and the company is doing and how it started. Uh, but clearly also um, the conversation is going to be about his entrepreneurship. You know, what does it mean to be a foreigner um, from Australia is where Andrew is originally from, um, or what the Chinese call us a Lao Wai in uh, China, which actually means alien. Uh, what does it mean to be that per type of person or a type of an entrepreneur in China, um, and how can you succeed? So this is really the, the framing of the conversation. Um, and as we always do, we kind of get a bit started, a bit of a warm-up uh, kind of question or, or intro from how you got in there. And, and I've obviously I read your your bio, and but I love your side of the story there, Andrew. Please, fire away. Yeah, I mean, like, certainly my pathway to the sports industry is very unorthodox. Um, I first, actually growing up, I never really had an aspiration to get into the sports industry, although I was very active. Uh, played a lot of tennis, Aussie rules football. I've got an identical twin brother, another older brother who's only 12 right. months older, and okay. a younger sister. So we were super competitive. Um, and I think that, that definitely plays out in our co corporate strategy. Uh, with my, my approach to to what we do, um, right, and yeah, well, I, I never even thought about going to China actually until it was my final year of university in uh, Swinburne in uh, Melbourne. Mm -hmm. I was invited to go to Singapore and Shanghai as part of a global uh, entrepreneurship summit. So mm -hmm. I got the invitation to go, and and around that same time, I just won this award at university called the Chancellor's Award, and they gave me like a University gave me literally a ten thousand dollar check, finishing university. Um, it was like a, it was an entrepreneurship award, so it was a nice way to finish. And part of that was going to Singapore and Shanghai on this ten day junket with roughly fifty other uh, foreign entrepreneurs from all over the world. And we're all we were all there about twenty two to twenty five years of age. Right. Um, first big experience for me in Singapore and China. Uh, anyway, post that trip. You know, got back to Melbourne and was completely besotted with Shanghai and, <laughs> you know, and China. I really got the China bug and I, I began to just think about, like, what would a career look like in China? Right. And finishing yeah, studies, yeah. at the same time, I was running a small uh, import uh, and retail business. I was actually importing perfume from all over the world and selling it through retailers in uh, in, in Australia, okay. uh, which I set up during university. And I 
just started reading up on China. I actually read a bunch of books. One I read, which was really powerful, was called Thick Face, Black Heart by a woman named Ching Ning Chu. Mm-hmm. And then I also read the follow-up, follow-up one, which was called The Asian Mind Game, if you're familiar with that, Marcus, okay. being in Asia. Um, and, yeah, just started to learn about China. Um, I then, around that time, finishing university, I, I then took a part-time job at a global communications firm called Jack Morton Worldwide. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, in, in pretty awesome company to work at. They were a U.S. firm uh, built off the idea of, at the intersection of events and business. So uh, a lot of corporate events, experiential events. So this company did like the Super Bowl halftime entertainment, the Olympic Games opening closing ceremony. So big, massive, large-scale events. The Australian business had three or four offices. I was doing business development, um, and I was doing it three days a week out when I finished university while also just doing doing my thing. And, And for me, it was really important to have the freedom, so I never wanted to... A full-time job. Uh, that was a, you know, difficult conversation to have with the, with, the, with the folks at Jack Morton who, you know, wanted me to full, you know, there full-time. But right. I said I'm, I'd be happy to work part-time if you want me. I'll, I'll do it. And then we did it. Had a great time. I learned a ton right. being there about branding, consistency, discipline with marketing, um, how to do storytelling, uh, building culture. All these things were just like really really valuable for me and i think at the time i didn't really understand why it was so valuable but then having you know then eventually setting up a company and running a a company uh, i I often reflected back on my experience at jack morton um but yes you you landed in in china around 2007 right yeah so it was around 2005 where i uh, sold that small retail business, quit the job at Jack Morton, and then I did a backpacking trip by myself around the world okay. for about nine months. So I oh. went to US, um, Canada, a few parts of Europe, and then Asia, and got back to Melbourne. It was about the start of 2006, and I, uh, over the course of that journey, I decided I was going to go back to China and start a company. Right. Um, and my logic was Australia is a small market, China really will be the most powerful country in the world in the future. Yep. Uh, the next decade will be critical. And I wanted to invest just as much time as I would in Australia into, into a bigger economy. Mm. And there was no desire to get into the sports industry at that point. Um, I was so eager to get into Shanghai. I just, uh, in fact, at the time, I, I wanted to start a publishing company, like a magazine, because I, I had always had big... Uh, aspirations to get into the media industry and I watched uh, Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Packer, two Australian uh, Mm. icons of that industry back in Australia and I called a guy who I knew used to run a magazine and I actually knew him through a friend called my friend, I said have you got this guy's his phone number, his name's Dan Jade and got his phone number, called him up, I said look do you want to grab a beer on Sunday afternoon, I want to talk to you about your experience running a magazine we met up for a drink. It was about 2 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon in Port Melbourne. By roughly 6 p.m. that day, we both agreed to start a magazine in China. Oh, right. um, And at the time, he was uh, he was running another business at the time. He was similar age to me. We are both fairly young. We are like 25, 26 years of age. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just sort of young and dumb, really. Um, and then <laughs> over, the next, uh, over the next 18 months did five or six trips to Shanghai Hmm. and we just started meeting people and the goal was to start a company in publishing 
or buy a company in publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say buy, I mean with not a lot of money. Yep. And or do a joint venture with a firm that we could sort of run. Um, and then, yeah, it was sort of like on the, I think it was the third or fourth trip, we met this guy. Uh, it was actually quite funny, really. We were sitting in this office in Shutahui, which is a uh, more of a bit of a financial and economic hub in, in Shanghai, but not, not the main one, sort mm-hmm. of the secondary one. And Daniel said, oh, I'm going to go and see this guy named Kirk who runs this company called Mailman. Mm. And it was 40 degrees outside, so humid, we were wearing suits. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, oh, you go, I, I can't be fucking going, you go. And then <laughs> da- as Daniel's walking out the door, I say, oh, wait, I may as well come. So this is like lunchtime. So we, we get in a taxi and head over to this random office called Mailman in this really small street called Taikung Lu in the centre of town, yeah. a really sort of old, hip neighbourhood, which has been converted into a bit of a tourist area now. And, you know, we, we met this guy who ran this business called Mailman. And at the time, it was a company that did postcard media sales. Right, okay. uh, so... Yeah, we walked in there and, and then had a great conversation with Kirk. We, we went, I think we grabbed coffee or lunch at this restaurant that he also owned. Uh, and then we just started talking about what we wanted to do in China and he was sharing his experience. I, I remember I remember um, him just laughing at what we wanted to do and just thinking, he just thought we were so stupid. Uh, later later that night, we, we, we actually got that feedback a lot, by the way, from right. a, lot of, a lot of people. But later that night, we, we all went out for a drink uh, and then Kirk and I, particularly, we hit it off. And uh, at the end of that trip, Daniel and I are back in um, uh, Melbourne, just sort of recapping the, the trip and then weighing up, you know, what are our options? We're weighing up doing a, a joint venture with a Chinese advertising agency. We were going to put roughly $200,000 into the business and then run the uh, publishing division. Hmm. Uh, and then I, I, I think I proposed, I think it was in Melbourne, I said, Dan, why don't we look at buying Mailman? Kirk seemed like he wanted to get out of there. He had three kids. He'd been there seven years. Um, so we started talking to Kirk about what a deal might look like and if he was open to it. Turned out he was. Uh, so it's roughly three to four months of reviewing what the business actually did. And uh, and and then we soon learned that the business was losing money. Uh, every month it was losing money. The product itself, had this postcard media channel, was like really fast going out the door, did the rise of digital, just destroyed the business. Um, LED screens everywhere, taxi media screens everywhere, elevator screens everywhere, all this was cannibalizing this very old traditional form of media. Um, And then I was so so headstrong about just going into the market and part of that was because I'd already told everyone I was going to leave. I didn't want to be having that conversation. It's like, what are you still doing here? I thought you were moving to China. Um, So... On the next trip, we were doing our final wrap-up of the due diligence, and then Daniel, what we, we, we went, we finished that trip, finished our due diligence report, and we're sitting in Melbourne, just sort of weighing up the decision. Daniel says to me, "It's a, it's a terrible business. It's a terrible idea. It's never going to work. We shouldn't do it. And mm. by the way, I'm not going to go to China anymore. It's too hard." Right. And I was like. I was in total shock because up until that point, he'd actually been with me ever since day one. Uh, He'd done every trip with me, uh, so I never really considered going myself. Uh, So following that, that was was quite of a shock to the system. But, you know, I was 27. It was about January of 2007. I called Kirk and said, Daniel's out. 
and I'm in. I'm going to do it myself. So All right. uh, I, I then bought the business effectively over the course of six months thereabout and right. moved in May of 2007 was my first day in China as a, as a tenant. Mm. Had, I, had an, I had an apartment already that I got on the, form, on the last trip. I was so eager to go. I, I rented an apartment before I even lived there. I love it. That's how keen I was to get there. And and then and then you know, yeah, before you know it, I was sitting in Shanghai, it was May 10, 2007, and we had four staff and we were mailman and we were selling postcard media and that's how it all started. <laughs> I love this. It's an amazing story there and, and, and I have plenty of flashbacks uh, when we started the company in China. Um, actually, TSA was set up in 2004, so a couple of years before. Right. Um, and we when we were registered and, and our Wufi is out of Shanghai as well. And uh, the same thing when I went there, I just fell in love with the city uh, and, and I was a bit like you. It's like, I got to move here. Um, but yeah. uh, my offices in, in Asia or in other parts were, were already a bit larger. So I couldn't really get see myself moving to China, even though it, it, all the excitement which you saw there, um, I saw as well, right? How big this is going to be and, and yeah. the, the vibrancy of the place. And of course, Shanghai is an amazing city anyway. Um, so, I, you know, in hindsight, I'm sort of almost like, damn, like maybe I should have stayed a few years there. But, uh, you know, that's, I love that story. So, Well, I think that's the key thing. Like most people, they think they want to go to Shanghai and they want to do a couple of years there. But very few people are willing to do 10 years. And I, I think like if you want to have success in China, you have to think, am I willing to do 10 years in China? Absolutely. And so what, what companies end up doing is like no one is really willing to do that. Uh, plus, it's just the sort of the macro environment and the local laws yeah. make it, you know, just even more challenging. Yeah, it but it's not an easy. Place. Yeah, so people end up just going, "Well, I have to buy the company, really, or do a joint venture, which ultimately I usually get screwed anyway." So yep. it, it's just such a. And I didn't envision doing ten years either. I did thirteen there full time, but I didn't envision doing more than four or two when I first got there. And probably by end of year four, realized that. Actually, I can't really put an end date on success. Uh, I could leave now with nothing, but I came here on a mission and I'm going to build value in, in, in the country. And yeah. so just so took that Tell on. us a bit about the early days, uh, maybe just a mm. short uh, story on that before we get into the exciting world of what you all the stuff you guys are doing now. But, uh, you know, as you said, it yeah. wasn't easy, so, right? It wasn't like, hey, you just turned the company around overnight. It was a long no, slog, no, right? But, yeah, really long journey. Um, so let, let's just think. So 2007 arrived. It probably wasn't until the end of 2009 where we, we as we as a team, when I say team, we had like I think at that point we probably had eight staff. Um, over that first two years, we had tried so many different media products just to stay alive because everything that I had financially was in the company. So it's not like we had a lot of working capital to um, invest into new things. Yeah. So. It was really just like stay alive for the first two years, yep. get as much business as possible. My time was mostly spent selling the media product to the agencies, the domestic, the local Chinese um, media agencies, the mm -hmm. media buying agencies, and then some direct brands across Shanghai, Beijing. Right. And, and at the time, we had like 5,000 restaurants that we were distributing postcard media to. Right. Um, and But that was sort of, that was dropping by the month. Um, and... By the end of 2009, digital was roughly, I think the, the amount of people online in China in 2000, end of 2009 was close to 300 million. Mm. And that was an enormous audience. Like yep. you, you figure that like compared to Australia where I'm from, where I think at the time, we, Australia probably had 
12 million people online at that point. So <laughs> yeah, you're talking about market size 30 times greater than where I was from. So for me, it was like, wow, digital is going to become part of society in a massive way here. They leapfrog dial-up. They didn't even do dial-up internet. They leapfrog broadband, just yep. went straight to 3G internet. So Correct. we began, uh, like I hired people and started reading as much as I could and learning as much as I could around um, digital technology, social media, which was just emerging then. Two, yeah. I know we were launched in 2009 as well. There was Ren mm. Ren that was out back then, which which went under. Right. Um, but, you know, just learning as much as we can. And then just, I think our first client ever was American Airlines. All right. And, yeah, a fantastic guy. Wesley Stockstill um, was, was the VP at the time. And he said to me, if you do digital, I'll, I'll support you as a client. Right. And I was like, I'm going in. And we signed up. I think it was a million RMB contract, biggest contract we'd signed up until that point. Right. Um, and that was at that point where I thought, you know, we're, we're probably beginning to head in the right direction. Mm. Um, I like it. And so that was 2000, that was end of 2009, beginning of 2010. Mm. And then it probably was another, our first, our first sports client was the Australian Football League when they did their practice game. They did their first ever professional game, exhibition game in Shanghai with Brisbane and Melbourne oh, coming up. Right. And I went to the press, press conference to see it all happening, this is in the launch, and then I met the guys who were driving it from the AFL, and the, the guy driving at the time was named Dave Matthews. He's he's now the CEO of GWS, the um, the team in in Sydney in the AFL, and we hit it off. Uh, about a, two weeks later, we signed a contract. We were going to do the marketing for the for the event, mm. and we launched an AFL Chinese website, did right. a bunch of social media, a lot of content marketing, feeding that content out to you know, hundreds of communities online and pulling traffic back to this this website, talking about the AFL and explaining what it is and where they can watch it. Um, okay, cool. And, and, then, and then that was really our first entry into sports and our first major international uh, mm. sports client was Liverpool Football Club, which oh, was, right. I think that was in 2011. Yeah, awesome. So you were yeah. dealing with Ian there or was it was uh, sort of Ian your contact? Ian was around, yeah, Ian was around, but we were dealing with, Paul Rogers back then. Right. Paul Rogers now at AS Roma, but he was at Liverpool. Excellent. So, uh, I mean, and like you said, you 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 were a sportsman, right? So you, I guess, uh, you you know, you had the, the some sort of a bug in there um, which linked to sport, but it wasn't your your focus at the beginning, right? I guess you were focusing on traditional advertising routes and stuff. So. Um, you know, once you had, I guess, the, maybe once you tasted the LFL, um, did you then sort of specifically went after sports and you realized yeah. maybe there is an opportunity because well, as a foreigner in the country, you know, and this is what I've done for 25 years out here, right? I mean, you know, people like talking to us because we sound the same, we look the same, right? And, and we can help yeah. translate it into the local environment, right? So uh, is that, was that a bit of your experience as well? It was, it was part serendipity, part deliberate. Um, we didn't consider sports as a main category until probably 2013. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, which is still seven years ago. Um, yeah. and, no, we were still serving more sports clients by 2013, but the investment from the global sports community was so small right. into the market, you couldn't, you couldn't survive. Okay. So although we actually built a sports department pretty early and started – focusing on digital and sport very early, probably, mm. you know, in 2011, 2012. 
However, we couldn't really make it a clear value proposition and a focus until 2.13 and onwards. Okay. Um, and that was when the country really started to make a commitment on sports and global rights holders, you know, began putting China at the top of their, you know, corporate strategy mm. on where to grow audience and um, dollars. Right. Yeah. At the beginning, what were you doing for these guys? I mean, I remember, of course, it was everything from local websites and, and other stuff. But, uh, you know, tell me a bit more. What is it really what you were doing yeah, there? I mean, and then we'll go into what, you know, what you're doing now, I'll, of course, I'll which give, is much I'll give broader. You an example. Yeah, I'll just give you examples of different projects. I mean, this yeah. is way back. So, you know, the AFL, we were like building local Chinese website, running social media marketing to right. promote the exhibition game. For Liverpool, they came out on tour to Guangzhou and mm -hmm. we did all the marketing promotion online for it. Right. Uh, when Manchester United came out, we did the same thing. I think that was 2012. Um, we, uh, you know, and the business really evolved, but it went from being very social heavy to now, you know, right now, I mean, we, we do, we own e-commerce rights. We do, we have our own production studio, state-of-the-art studio. We produce right. like hundreds of hours of short-form direct-to-consumer content every month that gets distributed across you know, the dozens of Chinese video platforms. Um, we do a lot of digital strategy and entry strategy, media partnerships with all the platforms. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's much more holistic now. So social is still, I would say, the bedrock of the conversation, right. but it ends up being really just a tool to deliver the strategy, whatever that strategy may be. Yeah. And how big is sports now compared to you know other the other businesses? Is, is all swung completely towards the sports side, or you still have a you mean, you mean for us? Oh no, we're yeah for you now. We're one hundred percent sports. Okay, we so the other for, things you were used to do before, you you're just completely yeah no we, we we I mean occasionally we did some travel clients within that space and really tried to um uh, integrate a sporting opportunity as well. But as a business, we've been. Pretty much sports focused from 2013, 2014. And we were, I mean, we were certainly the first agency in China doing sports digital marketing. Um, and I, I remember having conversations with clients and they're like, oh, look, our budget's $500, you know? And and then still saying, <laughs> okay, we can look at it, <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, so, yeah, you know, the market, uh, you got to start somewhere, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's very interesting. Now, uh, I mean, give me a couple more examples of, you know, take a, I don't know, one of your bigger clients um, and give us the whole sort of breadth of what you're doing for them. Um, you know, I'm not going to ask you how much they pay you, but, uh, you know, just give us a good sense of really how deep you guys are dealing with the big football teams or the NBAs, et cetera. So, yeah, our, our business, we work, so, I mean, I'll just give you um, a backdrop to the group now. So, we have Mailman in Shanghai. So we're, we're a one group, two brand company. So the group is Mailman Group. Right. The two brands are Mailman and Seven League. Mailman is in Shanghai with roughly 110 people. In Shanghai, we have, they're about 45 in Southeast Asia with a regional HQ in Singapore. Right. And then in London, we have Seven League with roughly 40 people full-time in London and then people all throughout Europe. Right. Uh, core business sports digital agency and consulting services so we tell you what does that mean yeah we tell you what to do <laughs> right and then the other half of the business goes and does it does so it. right okay yeah so it's sort of like here's a strategy here's a strategic framework if you want to build success in china or right. europe or asia mm -hmm. and and here's an executional model and team that can go and deliver that for you got it so i'll, I'll just give you some raw examples yeah, in please. europe 
we do the Chinese social media, sorry, not Chinese social media, we do the, I talk China too much, we do the European social media across France, Germany, Italy, some other, you know, some other markets in, in Europe, but NBA. Same Europe, yes. Yeah, same thing for the Scandinavian markets for, say, NHL. Right, uh, whereas okay. in China, we do the, we, we will do, let's just look at Panini, for example. Panini mm -hmm. is a, the collector card, football sticker yep, yep. Uh, card, huge organization. They, they, they have contracts with NFL, NBA, and everyone, right. and FIFA included. We not only run the Chinese social media, we run the e-commerce strategy. We do e-commerce management. Right. Well, we manage the live streaming weekly events with card collectors. We produce short form content. Mm. We manage the athletes that they engage with when they're in China to, to promote the products. Uh, we track and analyze all that and then grow the business. So, you know, the, the KPI for them is really around sales. Um, whereas, uh, let's say, um, the NFL, where we, in China, we run the social media for the entire 32 teams in the NFL roster. Yeah. Um, that includes all the content, um, localization of existing content across their global channels like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but also the creation of local content. Right. A good example of that is for the Patriots, we produced a Tom Brady six-part short-form uh, for internet-only web show. All right. Uh, um, and then even to big-scale projects like FIFA for the Russia World Cup, but also the uh, the France Women's World Cup uh, last year. Mm -hmm. For the Russia World Cup, we had a team of 16 on the ground across mostly Moscow and St. Petersburg shooting content, producing content, running all the social media, right. but then also managing the commercial activation for the six Chinese commercial partners right. in China and then putting dollar values to that. So not only like creating those the digital inventory for sale, but then executing on that, then measuring the impact and ensuring that it meets the contractual whatever obligation that the, the rights holder would have. Yeah. Uh, and then, then we do even athlete um, uh, branding, PR, management. Right. So what, so what are the kind of the names you guys work with right now? I, I remember a scene before you worked with Ronaldo and, and Kobe Bryant, but uh, who, who are your sort of current client maybe? Yeah, um, uh, we, I mean a bunch, some of them I don't like to talk too much about, but you know, we work with David Beckham, uh, Ronaldo now, uh, right. Harry Kane, uh, and there's, there's dozens of other footballers and, and NBA right. uh, athletes, uh, athletes that we work with, even like UFC stars like Zhang Wei Li, um, mm current world champion. Uh, so yeah, the, the business is, is quite broad across federations, leagues, teams, athletes, and then a growing category for us is a lot of the sponsor activation. So sponsors are right. looking to leverage off their, their, the rights holders, the association. reach into consumers in Asia and how to activate right. that. Yep. Yeah. Look, I think you're sitting in a very, very sweet spot there. And, and maybe before we go further, you know, how has the, the current climate, how has that impacted your business? Um, being so digital driven, you would think it's uh, this maybe is in your favor, but how, how have you, what is happening here in the environment right now? Yeah, I wouldn't say, I mean, nothing's in our favor when the world is suffering. Our, our clients have suffered a lot, but as a business, yeah, we've remained stable. Um, right. You know, I mean, this year we just took an approach where let's just support everyone that we engage with and you know just build goodwill and make sure that make we you know our job is really to make their lives easier not more painful but they have trouble you know paying bills or meeting their own expectations we, we just work with them on that but as a as a company we're, we're quite solid stable we, we right. expect a 
you know, a, a good year still. Right. No, because you're, you're still relying at the end of the day on, on the advertising dollar in some fashion, right? Um, certain things you do, I guess. Um, yeah, there's always a trickle-down effect, yeah, you exactly. know, top-down. So if, I don't think yeah. anyone's immune, but as a business, I think most organizations haven't sat at the boardroom and said we're going to pull our digital strategy. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. for sure. I think you you were yeah. sitting in a good space there. That's for sure. Uh, now I want to talk a bit about the the China landscape uh, in, in not just social media, but in the in the larger context of uh, because it is so different, right? And and clearly, if someone who is only used to you know YouTube and Facebook and you know whatever Twitch and you know Instagram, yeah. uh, they won't have a clue about uh, the groups you're dealing with there in China. So let, let's dig just a bit around there. I mean, of course, you know, as you said, you're dealing across all those. Um, what, what is the hot one right now i mean i know tiktok is the hot one around the world and there is of course it, it's born out of the chinese version there um but where do you guys spend sort of your time on right now and where do you see is the new exciting space in china well i think everyone's having to realize that video has moved 30 to 40 percent of that audience uh, attention to to short form video so yep. um Largely driven by Douyin, which is Correct. the I dance TikTok, the Douyin version. Yep. Um, you know, Kwaisha is just coming up now, which is Tencent backed short form, short form video similar to Douyin TikTok, mm -hmm. but with a really strong live stream and e-commerce function to it. Right. Um, so th those two are showing, you know, really good growth. Um, you know, you've still got like the streaming platforms like Ichie, uh, Tencent, uh, PP Sports, Yoku. Yeah, uh, it's it's a pretty dynamic. Uh, in, in some market, in some areas, I would say it is way more dynamic and even more developed than the Western markets. Would you agree with that, General? Cohen? Yeah, the, the the platforms like you know how like if, for example in the West you have platform like uh, Netflix where yep. it only sells you know video. That's their that's their model. Well, right. the market is still fairly immature for paid subscribers. So right. all these platforms have. Um, so I'm, I mean, like the, the the rights holder platforms, like an ICE or a Tencent yep. or, or um, PP Sports, for example, or Yoku, they, they have a much more dynamic and broad business because they're they're unable to really monetize purely sports Curious. related content. Right. Yeah. So whereas Douyin and Kwai Shou, they've got a really robust advertising model now, um, but they're, they're just short form, um, you know, free to free to use platforms. I mean, short form is, I, I think it's amazing. And, and China is, in my mind, is leading the way, um, you know, not just TikTok, but all the other the other platforms are doing it. Uh, you know, but in the monetization there is it's basically what an advertising driven model around it most of the time is, is or, or how do they monetize it really in the best possible way? Yeah, uh, short, yeah, short form, it's all, it's all advertising. No, right. no pay to play. So what what are the the pay platforms? You know, I mean, you know, we had our you know the ones which always went under there, the TV, and then you had PPTV and others. Where do you see the the, the long form content? Where is that heading in China, um, and where is the future there? I think it still has well, it certainly still has merit. I mean, entertainment really drives that though. So it's all the um, uh, Chinese dramas, Korean dramas. You know, they get they get a lot of the value in that. Mm -hmm. um, in the in the money that's going around for long form content, like even if you look at the Last Dance, although it was a success in China, no, nowhere near the online buzz that it delivered globally, and nor did they pay any anywhere near. And, and if you look at sports, where where do you see you know 
the, the Premier Leagues and the and, and the MBAs of the world, how are they continue to drive money or, or the monetization in China? Where, where, if you were well, betting I, men, I don't where think would there's you any bet on? worry for a NBA or a Premier League. I think the cream rises to the top. It's a rule, you know. So the 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 platforms tend to play a they put an anchor in the ground around one product. So Tencent put it around NBA, mm. PB Sports put it around the Premier League and football in general, but predominantly uh, Premier League. And then the the struggle is that all the second tier, but are still, so second tier in China, but still first tier in many markets of the world, um, they really struggle to get good money for their rights, but also just like good talent working on the rights, creating, you know, shoulder content and other localized content formats around it. Right. That that's the real challenge when you're not the number one player, um, because the demand for the say the Premier League or uh, or the NBA it's so high that the, that all the money goes into those. It into sucks those everything else out of the yeah, market. Yeah, sucks everything else out. So, Correct. Yeah, so it's it's very tough. For you, a, you guys play a role in that in terms of helping then this let's call it the, what we what we would call second tier, which you know the Bundesliga isn't second tier in Germany, but it is yeah. maybe second tier in uh, in this sense. Um, do you guys work with these tenor rights holders to help them market that and bring their value up? I'm assuming you do, right? Yeah, we, we've, we've not only... I mean, we obviously provide guidance and insights uh, on how to navigate the environment and where to, where to sort of place your bet, what sort of deals to accept, what, what not to. Um, right. And we have sold, you know, dozens of... or a bunch of different rights from, like, live streaming rights to interview rights to um, football club channel rights. Okay, so you are in the sort of trading side of that business as well, as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think as a company, you sort of have to be. If you, we spend, I mean, we spend millions of dollars with the platforms. Right. So it, it does give you a degree of leverage and access that that as a as a company we sort of in a way are compelled to. Um, but yeah, it is still challenging for anything that is not a tier one property to get really strong value in the market. You've got to be quite creative. You know, if you're selling a short form or even just long form multi-series program like a documentary, for example, you know, the platform is really looking for more than just the, the, the content. They're looking for some sort of commercial rights and event, athlete appearances. Um, and they're going to look to maybe break up that, that rights in any way they like to, to be able to monetize it. So, so basically what you're saying is to to really, you know, break into China and, and of course be commercially successful. It's one thing of you can stream it free and, and the whole world watches it. Uh, but if you are really trying to monetize it, you have to be a whole lot more creative um, right yes. now. That's, I think, the, the underlying message, right? For sure. Absolutely. Uh, it's getting harder and harder. Now, yep. w- one thing is, and I've seen from the certain reports, uh, you know, which you, you shared and others, um, you know, that KOLs, right, the influencers, key opinion mm. leaders, are are a big issue, a big thing in China, right? Uh, you know, I think I read somewhere fifty percent of people, you know, depend on their, you know, for their purchasing or decision making, and you know, somewhere over eighty five percent, I think, trust them, believe that okay, what they're yeah. telling me is the truth. How does that work in the world of sports? You know, do you, you leverage that as well, or yeah. is that more for traditional brands? In some respects, even more powerful. Like right, the okay. fan communities in China and even in Asia, they're very influential among their peers. Right. So it's typically one young guy could be could be twenty five years of age or thirty years of age. You know, living in say Nanjing, and he's the head of a 
Premier League supporters club, mm-hmm. Premier League team supporters club. And he has enormous influence among the fan communities here. I mean, this guy would be more than likely running fan viewing parties. He would be selling merchandise himself. Right. A lot of that merchandise would likely be fake. <laughs> okay. uh, they would be they would be selling jerseys. They'd be importing from Hong Kong and selling it. Um, they'd be getting it from maybe even the real supplier and then selling right. it at the back of a truck and even on, on Tmall and Taobao, which is the, yeah. the e-commerce giants. Yeah. Uh, so they they actually have enormous influence, and as a company, we've taken an approach where like engage them as much as possible, but ensure that they know that that we're we're equally as important for them because they also need the status, yeah. they need the recognition from the club uh, to to maintain to their own status it. within their community. Right. So, but you see rivalries with fan communities as well. Yeah, like it might be two guys who are fan leaders of their respective fan communities, which may have like a million followers in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love it. That competes cool. for you know the respect and the admiration of their peers to be the you know the most important fan community for that team. Yeah. One other thing, and that goes along the similar lines, which is you know this huge thing in China, of course, is the the actual live streaming. You know, and that means someone physically you know does something, right? Um, performs, sings. Uh, whatever it's pictures of product and so on, and, and then people can you know act, act you know interact with them. Uh, you know it, it, that has kind of gone a bit around the world as well. But I don't think as at a level that it is in China. How much does that is that being used in in your space as well, or in the world of sports, or is that really more pure entertainment? No, no, absolutely. I mean, like um, esports is one of the most profitable category. I think it is the number one profitable category for Tencent. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, so they, I think they make they make way more money on the gaming category than any other category in their business. In fact, it probably keeps everything else afloat. Yeah. Uh, organizations like or companies like YY, uh, YY Sport, they have a sports department as well. They look at various rights, um, but they just don't pay for right. you know sports like live rights. So they look for creative ways to to stress the value. But they're largely driven by UGC and gaming titles. Hmm. That's filling filling their content, uh, similar to Twitch, really. Whereas Twitch is beginning to look into the sports category uh, in terms of be- becoming a rights holder. Yeah. Mm. Are you guys playing in the in the esports space as well, or are you more focused on the real yeah, we, world we, sports? We we have an ownership of a team, Nova Esports, out of All Hong right. Kong. Okay. Um, we're just you know one of the owners, but but uh, been involved with them for about two years. They they're a successful um, team. They've successful teams all over the world across multiple um, publishers. Okay. Uh, we do a lot of work with a lot of uh, esports teams, including Evil Genius, uh, EA, consult with EA, and mm-hmm. then there's some more work as well going on at some, some of the real big corporates building out esports strategies out of London. When you look at both esports and and traditional sports, and in China, as you rightly said, esports is huge already. Right, it's just an absolute massive market. Where do you see this heading? You know, do you see this? Can they live with each other, or who is going to win this race? I don't think. Well, number one, I don't think it's a race. Uh, it's a very different corporate structure, and the, and the like. All the money's with the game publishers. Yep. So. The money is not with the teams, largely speaking. Very few teams make money in esports. You know, very few individuals make a lot of money. You know, I mean, you can probably count your on one hand or maybe two two hands the amount of 
uh, esports athletes, let's call them athletes, who make more than half a million dollars a year. So the industry is not for the athlete. The industry is for the casual game players at home that spend 80 bucks on the um, on the game, or let's say 30 bucks on the game and 300 dollars on the console. Um, the esports is just a, a, a curtain into the the industry. Yet the publishers make all their money on the casual game players with the in-app in-game buying. Correct. So there's too much weight and power on the publishers and the rights holders that. I think from a strategy point of view, a rights holder should absolutely be in the game because that's where they get the money. You'll get the money. But from a team ownership point of view, you need to be very, very clear about where you will get a return. Yep. No, no, I agree. Uh, it's a different conversation. But, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting viewpoint there um, that uh, yeah, esports, if people are always try to compare it right away with with traditional sports and professional, you know, professional leagues, uh, it is very different. Uh, like I said, the power base is very different. Uh, and yeah, and it's, also, it's, like, it's not like we're seeing um, major esports titles with primetime viewing on free-to-air networks. Or, you know, so that's largely driven by internet culture, which is still yep. massive, but the dollars are really around the casual game players. Right. So it's not, you know, the guys sitting at home playing League of Legends, Pug 3 or whatever, and buying products um, or Fortnite buying products within the game. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one, yeah. one other thing I want to talk a bit about, and that's, of course, is China is all mobile, right? I mean, it's yeah. uh, it's just a crazy mobile market. I think the number I saw is about 900 million people out of 1.4 have access to the Internet, you know, and pretty much every single one of those connections is through a mobile device. So it really yeah. is mobile. It's mobile only, not mobile first. Um, you know, wh how does that change in terms of strategy or the things you guys do uh, compared to maybe a Western Western setup? It does influence the way someone consumes the, the product, the rights holder. For example, most kids watch, they don't, well, number one, kids aren't watching, I say kids, but let's just say young adults. Yep. They're not watching football at the pub, largely speaking. Right. They're watching football on their, on their um, computer or their cell phone right. in their bedroom. And if they're living at home with their parents, even more so, they're sitting in their bedroom because they don't want to, there's only one TV in the household and right. they're not sitting in the living room watching watching. So it's a very, very different solo viewing experience, unlike, right. you know, Europe and uh, even Australia where I'm from. Okay. Like it's, you know, we can yeah. go to the pub and watch the sport together. It's a social Correct. thing. Right. Um, so it's a completely different experience. But these people are very active online on their cell phone throughout the game. Like they're not right. just watching the game. I think Correct. almost, I, I mean, I, it's safe to say next to zero um, consumers are just watching the football and not doing anything else. So the social interaction is then on the media, on the social media platforms, right? That's how they that's how they connect with the rest of the fan community and while you're watching the game, right? Yeah, exactly. Most of their lives are really through the cell phone, right? More than their, you know, um, still life. Yeah. No, no, it's it's very interesting. Now I want to yeah. switch a little, switch direction a little bit here and, and talk about as I said where we kind of started off with you know being a Lao Wai in uh, in China, building a business there. Um, talk a bit about your learnings, you know, both from what worked and what didn't work. You know, um, I think there is some. I'm sure you have some interesting stories on that. Yeah, I mean, it's how long's a piece of string. Um, 
I'm trying to think that maybe uh, interesting. I think about defining moments. I think that's really important. Like, think what what happened yeah. in the market at a certain point in time, and that how did that shape your, you know, um, decision making or whatever it may be. Yeah. It, was, it was probably the most significant thing for me personally was getting to year four or five, and then realizing that we we couldn't put an end date on. Oh, well, I couldn't put an end date on how long I wanted to be in China. Right. As a foreigner, you tend to go there and think, okay, because I'm a foreigner, I'll do X amount of years, then leave, because it's not my home. Yep. That's actually just a really bad strategy. Um, yes. Yeah, so that was a big shift in my mentality. Um, mm. So it, it did help too, because I met my, my, my now wife, but we I met her within the first six months of living in Shanghai. Mm. So we were together ever since. So that that definitely helped. We had three kids as well. So, um, <laughs> but you know, China will always be an anchor for us as a family. That 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 helped as well. Um, I think if you went in with that strategy, find local wife, have long term, you, you you're definitely fifty percent of the way there. Um, but that that approach then at least allowed me to think very long term, and the long term view was 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 about understanding. As a foreigner in this country, what unique set of skills and capabilities can we develop that add value to the economy? Right. And then being very clear about communicating that message to the West and then right. locally to all the stakeholders that we engage with. Do you speak Chinese actually? You, you, uh, my, my Chinese is just okay. It's not right. good, but I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm okay. You get away with it. Yeah, right, okay. my, my, in my household, they, Chinese is the dominant language. Right. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And, and again, what you just said is is it sounds is exactly how when I started TSA, which was it was a little before you started, um, I never had a I never looked at when I'm going to leave. I, that was never ever even on the radar. I don't ever think I saw to spend a minute thinking of that at all. Um, it was always just about where are we in here? How do we add value to that ecosystem? You know, what can I bring um, as the knowledge I have? Uh, and or maybe the different approach we would bring to it than uh, than what the local market has. And you know, when I started sports marketing in Asia, they, 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 no one really knew what the heck it even was. <laughs> you know, yeah. So so, uh, so and I'm sure similar in your space here. You know, a lot of the things you guys were doing and, and are still doing now, um, it was it just developed right over that period of time because the industries were exploding, but no one had really cracked it yet and figured it out. So uh, yeah, and I think. China, you, you have to understand that you're actually in their country and they they make that very clear to you mm. in very subtle ways, though. So in the way law is structured, in the way business is done, it's in, in a way the opportunities are delivered to you. And I, I think it's only, uh, let's say, in the last three to four years where I've had a lot of Chinese business leaders, you know, say to me, hey, I'm really impressed with what your company has done with mm. meaning that like we were not before where now we now respect you like mm. they they immediately write off foreigners they don't expect you to last they right. don't expect that you'll stick around right. so and you you just take so many hits that it just it, you then become immune to the hits you don't even see them you don't even yeah. feel them. Uh, exactly. it's just it's the default response and reaction that you get from local companies like they're just out to screw you most of the time and then that it, you know you have to go in there thinking no no we have to sort of play by their rules and you know and find value together
yeah. and that's Absolutely. where you can, can create win-win uh, partnerships with the with the domestic brands and the platforms. So, I think yeah. there is a broader narrative around us versus them, but I believe uh, deep down they, they ultimately want the same thing you do, and that is success. And it just takes a long time to to get the credibility and the trust, not being a native to their language and culture, to build. Yeah. No, totally. And and I think, I mean, you know, it, it's a sensitive subject, but uh, this whole concept of uh, reverse uh, racism, right, which is sort of what they may, you know, people maybe experience in other parts of the world. Uh, I think as a Westerner, you experience that in Asia as much as well, right? Uh, it's just part of it. Um, yeah, oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and, yep. and like you said, you know, you just got to deal with it and, and you've got to figure out how to blend in some, some way or the other, right? Yeah, I think that concept of race, it, it's everywhere, really. Um, that especially now with this sort of populist nationalist culture that's that's growing. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I experienced uh, comments about me being with a Chinese wife in China, like with, with but more directed at her. Like, what are you right. doing with the foreigner? Right, right, you know, right. you should be with one of our own. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's that's. I don't think it's going backwards either at this stage. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's an it's an interesting topic, and and as I, I think most people always th think that it just happens the other way around, um, but it, it clearly happens uh, happens here as well. Now, one thing I, I wanted to talk a bit more about is you've obviously done besides building up your own company here, um, and now going global. Um, actually, talk a little bit about that before I move on to the other thing yeah. I just had. You know, what is all the you know how did you go from being clearly a, a Chinese a small Chinese company to a big Chinese company now something which you're doing globally? Yeah. What what happened? I believe well, you had a, you had some investor coming in there right in two twelve, and so you used you no, raised we, some decent money. First time we raised money was in two thousand and sixteen. Okay, uh, or sixteen. Came, right. in, came in in two thousand seventeen, but we raised roughly twenty million US and then another five million US from three investors, Yao Capital. That Yao Ming and his capital firm, mm. uh, We Capital and Kaixin Capital, and uh, those funds have been used to, you know, expand a global vision. And our bet is that as as we evolve, uh, platforms are becoming much more flat, like available everywhere around the world. Yeah. Um, sports properties and rights holders becoming much more global. Their talent, their hiring, are becoming more globally oriented. So that you know, mm. you you might see a global head of marketing for Pepsi go to a Manchester United or something like that, or people from the entertainment industry doing it. Um, right. We believe that rights holders will want to connect in a very local way in as many markets as possible. Hmm. Um, and so it's all about building more and more capabilities to deliver a global media company for a rights holder. Right. And so expanding into Europe, help that expanding into Asia outside China help that and you know we, we just continue to grow capabilities and reach and delivering better economies of scale to make it more affordable for rights holders to deliver that global communication plan and then build a, a you know an effective commercial strategy under underpinning it all right and that's that's really driving the corporate strategy for us it's it's really that. Right. And that's your focus now, right? From what uh, our, our earlier conversation now being based out of Singapore, not in, in China anymore, I guess it gives you a chance to really look at the world in a different way, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's also just a great change of scenery. Um, yeah, that's but true. Singapore, Singapore itself is a economic hub for Southeast Asia. 
There's, you know, over 600 million young people throughout Southeast Asia. Many of them love football and other sports. Many of them are growing sports like mixed martial arts, yep. badminton, ping pong is growing. Um, so, yeah, for me personally, I'm really charged with growing the group, um, building out that value proposition I talked about, uh, and then helping everyone to integrate and connect with each other and collaborate uh, and then, you know, just build a great culture in a place that people want to work at and clients want to work with. So you, you're pretty much in, a, in, a, in essence now you have you can you operate across all of the global social media platforms and or any other platform which is out there um, across the board, right? You know, initially yeah. it was maybe China, but now it really is yeah, you're going biggest, global in that sense, right? Yeah, our biggest program we do now is the FIFA Global Fan Movement, which is over 50 markets. All right. Um, so yeah, well, I mean, we're in, in almost every language with a with a population greater than five million. And, right. uh, but with a dominant presence in, you know, China, um, with a growing presence in Southeast Asia. Uh, Tell and, me a bit more about that program. What, what exactly is it what you guys are doing for them? Uh, it's a global fan-led local football community um, uh, strategy to grow voices of football all, all over the world and tell football stories. For right, FIFA. okay. And uh, this is, again, short-form content or yeah, what, short what, what form? Yeah, short-form video. Okay. Um, uh, written narrative. Yeah. Very cool. And and that is uh, and so that's how long you've, you've been engaged for a while already and two and a half years on that program. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. No, no. That, so, even, uh, even if you look at like even if you look at NHL, which is largely a challenger brand out in this this part of the world, yeah. they are we do their social and community building and and um, digital strategy in China, doing the same thing with them in Scandinavia. Mm. Same client, big aspirations, growing brand, trying to find value and find relevance in new markets. Interesting. What would be the uh, if, if you if you sum it up as the the biggest sort of uh, lesson of all the things you've done? You know, whether it was something which worked, and and you're saying, look, you know, I really learned out of that because it worked so well, or it, because yeah. it was a failure. What well, which be if you pick one or two? Um, good question. Off the top of my head. I would say discipline would be, and that is discipline to say no mm -hmm. and discipline to focus on areas that you, you believe you can be a leader in. So don't like, so do less, but do more of it. Right. Uh, and then as, as we develop capabilities and strength and, and let's say leadership, then expand and do more. Right. Uh, that was, that was probably the single most strict um, strategy or policy around our strategy to grow. Yeah, interesting. It, uh, just to wrap it up maybe here, uh, because we've already covered a good ground on, on, on your life and your, your time in China and now, of course, in Singapore, going global, uh, uh, you know, having investors there. Uh, what, what, you have an end goal? Uh, you know, you didn't have an end goal unless you go to China. What's your end goal? Taking the company public or, or just uh, keep running it and growing it, making it bigger? Is there, is there a yeah. plan out there already? Uh, local strategy on Mars would be a good one. Uh, no, um, no. As, as a business, we just see we're still sort of learning, and still, I would say it's you know we've completed the first few miles of a marathon. We've got the infrastructure, the process, um, but there's still so much we can do. For me personally, you know, I love what we do, love the industry, love the people we work with. We're just going to continue to grow, build out that value proposition. Um, but I'd, we'd love to explore, explore more in e-commerce, 
commercialization of video, um, you know, become just become really the anchor for so many of our clients and their ability to grow their global brands. Uh, and that's that's where we're focused now. I'm not I'm not really looking, you know, I sort of redo a strategy every three years thereabout, and that seems to change every six months in Asia. Yep. So yeah, it moves it's, fast. It's really it's really tough to see where the um, you know the market will go. But you know we've got a good team. We've got good leaders across most parts of, of where our businesses are, um, and also just seeing them flourish. I, I I enjoy seeing some of our team. Some of our team have been with us for nine years, ten years. Right. And it's great to see them be, you know, be leaders, travel the world, do what they love doing. Yep. Well, it sounds yeah. like you're having fun there. You, you did a couple of investments too, right? Or you invested in others or you founded a couple other things, you know, the loop yeah, space and transition China. Or, you founded know. Uh, a company called Kawo uh, in China, yeah. social media management technology. Right. Uh, those guys are doing a great job. Uh, we invested in another company called Eco Sports, which is like the sports business journal of China. Okay. Um, and we're also looking at, at a few others right now, uh, but we'll continue to invest in talent, technology, um, and process. So mm. anything that helps us deliver what we do better. Like it, talent, yeah. technology, and process. There we go. I love it. Very cool, Andrew. Look, uh, I what's really enjoyed. What's next for you, Marcus? Yeah, what's, what's next, next for what's me? Next for My God, uh, besides doing podcasts, huh? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think podcast for me is an interesting one because it really it gives me a chance to, as I said, listen. I, I'm a talker in a general sense, right? Uh, because I'm, you know, I'm always on the sales side of the business, um, and having the, you know this this podcast allows me or, or forces me in a sense. To actually pay much more attention, what what maybe what's come, what others have done, and then the learning of it, and so that is part of what I'm doing at the moment. Is besides sharing, of course, these amazing stories of people like yourself, uh, it also really lets me to uh, to learn, think of new things. So there's a couple of projects I'm involved in right now. Um, you know, TSA clearly is pivoting in a very different w direction um, of where we used to be. We've gone almost virtual now. Um, I've pretty much shut all the offices down and, uh, and everyone is work operating from home um, to be a bit, you know, uh, ready for what I think is coming. I think we're going to see uh, for the next, I think, a year or two at least, uh, some pretty nasty environments around the world. So, uh, so I was quite happy at the moment that we are slim, lean and, 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 uh, and mean, maybe if that's the right word. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's where we're heading. I think it's it's a very, it's a bit, probably a bit of a different journey. I, I love the digital yeah. space you're in. Um, we went into it with with Sportfix, which was our OTT platform. That fortunately we didn't quite have the the stamina to pull it through. Uh, even though I still believe OTT is the future, but even we see with the Zone or others who have probably more firepower than we had. Um, you know, they're gonna. It's a long, long runway to get there. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's a, there's some. It's a, it's a it's a constant learning, right? Um, and this environment we're in now, it's it's so uh, unique and different that uh, exactly who knows how uh, how the next few years will look like in our industry. So uh, yeah, we're pivoting into consulting. Um, we have a couple of really interesting consulting gigs going on there, where we're building master plans for parts of Asia. 
um, to a sports master plan. Uh, we're going into education. Um, we're going into other areas which probably previously I would have never looked at because it just was a bit too on the on the edge of it. Uh, but I do see huge opportunities in that space um, to be a bit different again. Um, and that's what I've done for 25 years anyway, right? I mean, if you look at what TSA was when we first started to maybe what we're now, uh, we're a completely different company. And so I think you consistently, what at least that was that would be that would be my. Um, takeaway on it is that you have to consistently reinvent yourself. Um, you know, I we're, I call it TSA 5.0, which means there were four other incarnations of it already. Um, you know, I don't know how many incarnations you think you've gone through with your business, but uh, that's how I would look at it. You know, you just have to reinvent it and sometimes yeah. you have to throw it all out uh, in a bit, in a sense, and, and start all over. Um, and we've done that a few times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've been in the game a long time. Yeah, exactly. And there's no plan to leave the place either. Here. I think they're going to bury me out here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. Good, buddy. Hey, look, this was okay. awesome. I really enjoyed the uh, catching up with you. Um, you know, hopefully we we'll can do this in uh, in person next time when they, when we're allowed to travel again, whether yeah. when you come out no here or I'm in Singapore. Cool. Yeah, and grab dinner here. Okay, definitely. mate. Nice chatting. Uh, you have a good one. Uh, the Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.